Malachi 2.17 You have wearied the Lord with your words, but you say, how have we wearied Him? By saying, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord, and He delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like fuller's soap. He will sit as a refiner and purifier of silver, and he will purify the sons of Levi and refine them like gold and silver, and they will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord as in the days of old and as in former years. Then I will draw near to you for judgment. I will be a swift witness against the sorcerers, against the adulterers, against those who swear falsely, against those who oppress the hired worker in his wages, the widow and fatherless, against those who thrust aside the sojourner and do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Let me pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that we can come in this place and, and hear it read and then hear it taught to us, proclaimed. Lord, I pray for your messenger this morning, Pastor Charlie. Lord, would you use him? Would you give him the words that we need to hear? Would he be able to clearly communicate the meaning of this text? And Lord, then help him. To, to apply it to our lives, our context. Lord, help us be faithful, attentive listeners. Lord, I also want to pray now in just supplication for those in our body who are sick and in need. Lord, we pray for those members who are recovering from surgery, who are sick. Lord, cancer just stands out as we think of so many family and friends that here recently have been battling cancer. Yes. So let's pray for those that we know in this community, Lord, struggling, would you help them? Would you continue to give those medical professionals mm. working with them wisdom, yes, help, Lord. and aid? Lord, for the bereaved, we pray for them as well. Lord, I know during this time of year, around the holidays, for some who have experienced loss, it can be very tough and difficult. So, Lord, would you be with those who have lost loved ones? Would you comfort them? Um, Lord, I, I pray uh, particularly this morning... Uh, Barbara Allman, our shut-in of the month, Lord, would you be with her? Yes, her. Lord, that's Lord, right. help us to be able to reach out to her. Yes. Lord, again now, as we turn our attention to your word, would you help us, Lord? We need your help, and so we ask for it in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Pastor Chad, for that uh, reading of God's word. And, um, I don't know about you, I wish Christmas season lasted about three months because there's so many wonderful, beautiful hymns that pertain to the message of Christmas and we try to jam them all into one month. I, I'm not opposed to singing Christmas carols at other times of the year. But you know, isn't it wonderful to see how God in His sovereignty 
works through his instruments, his people, in writing these beautiful hymns, uh, the Charles Wesley hymn that we were singing, Come Thou Long-Awaited Savior. Oh, my goodness, I was just looking at the words. Uh, you, you need to go back and just read through those beautiful words from that saint hundreds of years ago. And, and yet then, you know, as Sister Brittany Hooser was singing that beautiful song, that even more contemporary, uh, Amy Grant, I believe, uh, uh, you know, better than a hallelujah. The words, you know, God's got so much to say to his people and ultimately to the world through these wonderful songs. So uh, enjoy, enjoy as we go through the Advent season and into the celebration of Christmas. Enjoy singing these beautiful hymns of old and new. As you go back to your Bibles, as Pastor Chad has already directed your attention to Malachi chapter 2, we're walking through this wonderful book of prophecy. It is the last book of prophecy in the Old Testament. Malachi is the last of the minor prophets, or all the prophets for that matter. And he's writing somewhere around the mid-5th century B.C. So almost 450 years before Christ is even born, he's, he's writing, he's prophesying, and so you see these are the last words that God will give to his people for over 400 years until he speaks through his servants and ultimately through his son, Jesus Christ. And as I think about where we are in the book, and I hope you see a pattern of where God is challenging his people, particularly the priests, the spiritual leaders of that day. And God is confronting them. And their response is interesting because you see the hardness of their hearts because they're living in denial and basically are, are kind of cynical towards God. And it, it, that's the same thing that we pick up here in chapter 2, verse 17. Just, just imagine this scenario. Probably don't have to stretch your imagination too much to imagine it, but, but just imagine a, a teenage son or daughter as they're kind of huffing and puffing under their breath and they're picking up their clothes off of their bedroom floor and, and there in the doorway is mom with her hands on her hips. Some of you are nodding already. Yeah, I've been there. And, and you know, and, and the teenager is, is just, just complaining and it says, I get so tired of having to pick up my clothes off my floor. And the mother's standing there with her hands on her hip and she's a bit exasperated too. And she's looking at this room that looks like an F5 tornado maybe just took a path directly through it. And she's replying also with a sense of exasperation and frustration as she shakes her head and says, And you make me so weary having to hear you complain and gripe. Now I'll give you that little contemporary scenario because if you've raised teenagers, and all of us were teens at one time, you plug in on one end or the other. You can identify to some extent. But this is almost the way it is with our Heavenly Father. Sovereign, eternal, holy God, as he's trying to deal with the spiritual leaders of his people. And you can almost sense the, the exasperation, the frustration that God is, is building up as we go through the book. And I'll show you a little bit about that as we go. But I'll take you back to verse 17 of chapter 2, because the prophet Malachi is speaking on God's behalf to the priest and the leaders. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. God is just getting sick and tired of hearing all your complaints and all your excuses and all your retorts. He says, you have wearied the Lord with your words. And, and what we see here 
is the insolence of God's spiritual leaders. And, and, and I'll help you to unpack that verse and understand just where I'm going with that. They just don't get it. <laughs> That's what's so frustrating for God. Every time he confronts them with his prophet, and, and by the way, Malachi is just one in a long series of prophets that have been confronting Israel, Judah, and the combined nations. So here God is just, you know, he's trying to get their attention, trying to point out where they've gone wrong, but, but you see this spirit of insolence, an attitude of insolence that reflects a tragic lack of spiritual discernment on the part of the priest. Now we're not just talking about your average Hebrew citizen out there. We're talking about the priest, those who should be leading the people of God. And in this lack of spiritual discernment, you see as we look at the text and just remember what we've already read and studied in chapters 1 and 2 up to this point, you see a great arrogance on the part of the priest. And it's really beginning to wear on God. You know, God is patient. Amen? I'm glad. I don't know about you. I am glad that God is a patient God. And, and God is a merciful God. Would you agree to that? Amen? He is merciful. We, he does not give us what we deserve. And he hasn't given us what we deserve. Praise the Lord. He is merciful. But you know, even, the, even though God's attributes have no limitations. In other words, there's no limit to his love. There's no limitation to his grace. There's no limitation to his mercy. You know, because all of that is unlimited. God will never run out. But let me tell you something. As you study the word of God carefully, you'll understand that this God who has no limitations to his many qualities does draw a line. Just as we parents from time to time, when our children push us so far, we will draw that line, even if it's imaginary in the sand, to say, this is as far as you're going to push me, or you crossed the line. And there, let me just share out of Psalm 103 to help you to appreciate that, and hold your place in Malachi 2, and, and if you want to go back to Psalm 103 with me there in verse 6, I just want you to see where God does draw, draw a line. It says in, in Psalm 103, verse 6, The Lord executes righteousness and justice for all who are oppressed. He made, he made known His ways to Moses, His acts to the children of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in mercy. But look at verse 9. He will not always strive with us, nor will He keep His anger Forever. God does draw a line. God does say there is a point where you push me, there will be consequences. And so I believe as we look at the tone of what's going on here, God through Malachi is basically getting ready to draw the line because of their arrogance, because of their contemptuous questions that they continue to respond back to God. Let me just quickly do a, a small review with you here. Brief review. As, as you remember back in chapter 1, <clears throat> for instance, in verse 2, the Lord said, I love you. Their response was this question. In what ways have you loved, me, loved us? How? <laughs> so you kind of sense the cynical attitude right there. Drop down to verse 6. God says to you priests who despise my name. Their response you say, in what way have we despised your name? God says, you know, you despise my name. They say, what? What? What do you mean? It's almost, you know, like they just don't grasp it. It's almost like 
it, those of you who are moms and dads do homework, uh, housework too now. So if you just imagine a mother that's just finished mopping and polishing her floors. And, and they're drying at the critical stage. And she's so proud. They have that sheen on them. And, and, and she's standing there. And all of a sudden, bursting through the door, comes a little boy. His boots are just as muddy as they can be. He's excited because he's got a bullfrog in his hand. And he's running through her polished floors. And she's standing there. Ah! And he stops dead in his track with a trail of mud going across the floor. Some of you know how this feels. And, and she's like... What are you doing? And he's standing up with his frog dangling in his hand. And he's like, what? What? <laughs> no, he's oblivious. He's oblivious. It's almost as if the people, the priests are responding to God with these questions like, what? What? Well, in chapter 2, for instance, if you look over in verse 14. Now, the priests have, have just been complaining because they've been crying at the altar and weeping before God and they, you know, and God's not blessing them. God's not uh, uh, supplying the things that they want. He's not easing their pain, the consequences. And, and they have the audacity in verse 14 to say, for what reason? Why God? Why, why are you not answering our prayers? So you, you see the pattern and then of course we drop down into verse 17 and the most recent of these contemptuous questions where the prophet says, you weary the Lord with your words. And, and they have the audacity to say, in what way have we wearied him? They don't even call the Lord the Lord. Folks, you're talking about some pretty hard-hearted, rebellious, spiritually blind people. And you know, you think about as gracious as God has been to the people of Israel. All through the generations, going all the way, all the way back. God has been gracious to them. He's blessed them. He's called them out to be his people. Even when they rebelled against him and he punished them and, and let them go into captivity, God again was gracious to deliver them from captivity. Oh, have they not experienced the grace and the mercy of God over and over and over? And yet this is the way that this rebellious generation, sinful generation, has the audacity to respond to God. Why? Because of the blinding nature of sin. The Bible makes that clear. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 4. That's, a, that's the nature of sin. It blinds us. It blinds us to be able to even see our sin. And they couldn't even see how they were out of, out of God's will, how they had uh, uh, been contemptuous towards Him. They couldn't understand because they were blinded by their own sin. Let me ask you this morning. No reason for us not to be honest. We're going to be coming before the Lord's table and bearing our hearts to the Lord as we remember Him and, and the elements. Let me ask you this morning. Is it possible that there's sin in your life that has blinded you to the sin in your life? Is it possible that, that you have allowed sin to harbor in your, to, to reside in your heart, a sinful habit, a sinful attitude that you don't even recognize that it's there? Even when a trusted friend uh, or maybe a message that you hear or God confronts you through a Bible study and He's saying, look at the pride in your life. Look at the selfishness in your life. Look at the greed in your life. Look at, you know, the, the things that are displeasing to me and, and you say, what? What? Don't, don't be caught off guard, dear brother and sister. One of the best things that can happen in our personal spiritual life is to take inventory every day. 
to get before God and say, Lord, show me. Pray Psalm 139, 23. Pray it on a regular basis. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts and show me if there's any wickedness in me and lead me in the way of everlasting life. Oh, listen, we need to do that. The, the priest of that day needed to do that. But also this insolent attitude of the spiritual leaders not only reflected a tragic lack of spiritual dis of discernment, but it also revealed a hardness of heart. That also was indicative of their wicked ways. The priest would dare, they would dare to malign the character of holy God. <laughs> You're talking about a, a, a pretty bold uh, and arrogant group here as we read further. When they say, in what ways have we wearied him? And that you say, everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord. And he delights in them. Or where is the God of justice? I read that, folks, and I got a little bit nervous myself. I mean, how? You talk about gall. You talk about nerve. You talk about sheer stupidity. To, to come back to God and say, you know what, God, from our perspective, you seem to favor evil people over us. After all, we see the evil people and the wicked people prospering out there, and you're not blessing us. I mean, after all, God, are you truly a God of justice? So you see how blinded they were. You see, they were looking out in the neighboring pagan nations, and they were seeing some nations had a little bit better than they did materially or militarily. And so they interpreted that as God's favor. And then, folks, let me tell you something. The Bible never says that God doesn't allow sinful people to prosper. On the other hand, the Bible never says that God's people won't suffer. That's, let me just share quickly. I, I can give you a context here in Psalm 37, one of my favorite passages in the Psalms. But, but listen to what he says in Psalm 37. The psalmist David says, Do not fret because of evildoers, nor be envious of the workers of iniquity. For they shall soon be cut down like the grass and wither as the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and feed on his faithfulness. Delight yourself also in the Lord and he shall give you the desires of your heart. Commit your works to the Lord and trust also in him. He shall bring it to pass. He shall bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as noonday. Look at verse 7. Rest in the Lord and wait patiently for him. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Don't look at television and see those wicked movie stars or sports stars or politicians driving in their limousines and living in their mansions and you know they're living like the devil and you're trying to figure out, you know, and you say, well, I want to be like them. No, no, no. He says, don't, don't envy those people. He says in verse 7, he says, put weight on the Lord. Do not fret because of him who prospers in his way. Because of the man who brings wicked schemes to pass. God is a just God, ladies and gentlemen. He is. He is a God of justice. And we'll see that in just a second. But where you may have lack in this life, as you faithfully serve the Lord and sacrificially give to God, 
I can assure you, based on the truths of God's words and the promises of God's word, he will more than make up for anything that you have lost in this very brief time on this earth. My goodness, Paul says in Philippians 4.19, My God shall supply all your needs according to His riches in glory in Christ Jesus. When you and I get to heaven, we will understand what Ephesians 1 talks about, that we have inherited all the spiritual blessings of heaven. We are children of God. Amen? And what loving parent is going to withhold anything that their child needs, much less wants? But we've got to be patient. We've got to be patient. So, you see that reflected here. They were actually questioning God because of their personal disappointment. Listen, personal disappointment is never a reason for disobedience. Do you understand? Personal disappointment is never a reason for disobedience. That's what they, they were disappointed. So they were just going ahead and rebelling against God and challenging God based on their personal disappointment because he wasn't acting the way that they thought he ought to act. When in all actuality, they, were, they should have been concerned about acting the way he told them to act. And so they were being, so their rebelliousness, their disobedience could be attributed partly to their dis, disappointment. How tragic. How sad. To see a believer who chooses to blame God because of painful, tragic, unfortunate circumstances. And then they choose to express that by rebelling against God. How sad. Hypothetically, the Christian woman who discovers that her husband is cheating on her and she decides to be angry with God. And so she responds then by frequenting nightclubs and, and, and bars and throwing herself at any man who shows attention to her. And then when confronted maybe by a loving brother or sister in Christ, she snorts, why shouldn't I? God obviously doesn't care about me. Oh, how tragic! Of a young person whose whose parents suddenly divorce, and they're and that young person is is destroyed and broken emotionally. They're hurt deep, and they decide, well, I'm going to be angry at God, and so therefore I'm going to just abandon the things that I've been taught. I'm going to go out there and live like the devil any way that I want to. Listen. I'll say it again: personal disappointment is never, never a reason for disobedience. And the priest of that day could have learned a lesson. Now it's interesting that they end with a question, the end, chapter, the end of chapter 7, verse 17, with a question. The question was, where is the God of justice? Where is this just God? They didn't realize that they were setting the stage for chapter 3 because God was going to respond. He was just saying, hold on just a second. Hold on just a second. I'm going to tell you about this just God. You know, friends, I'll tell you something. I'm glad that God hasn't administered to me what I justly deserve. And you ought to be glad too. And next time you want to complain that God is not just, then you just stop and go back and read Romans 3.23 and Romans 6.23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then quickly Paul says in verse 6, uh, or, or verse 23, he says, The penalty of sin is death. Eternal separation from God. If God administered His justice at the moment that you and I are born, we wouldn't breathe two breaths in this life. We'd just pass right through and be in hell immediately because we're born under the curse of sin. 
Oh, listen, God is just. Make no mistake about it. But so oftentimes our faith is not strong enough to see that. And that was the case with the priest. Let's look at verse 3, I mean, chapter 3, verse 1. Behold, you know, in the country we, we had an expression, look at here. You know, <laughs> God doesn't just put behold in there because it sounds nice. He's saying, now, listen, I got something I really want you to, to grab a hold of. And, and, and this is what I want to say. Behold, I send my messenger and he will prepare the way before me. God's pronouncement of certain judgment. He says, you want to see the God of judgment or justice? Here I am. Let me tell you, I'm going to be bringing judgment. And God describes this through the prophet Malachi, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 3. And it's interesting that God, first of all, describes how he is going to divinely send messengers appointed by God. He said, the, the messengers are coming. Now, we wouldn't really understand that today because of the media. When the president's going to be in town or something like that, all we, we know it through all the social media and the media on television and everything. But back in that day, if the, if the king was going to be coming into a region, into a village or whatever, oh, he would send messengers long in advance to make sure that all the roads were passable. We saw that in Kenya when we were there. They're kind of a developing country. And, you know, the roads over there are deplorable. And it just so happened the president decided he wanted to visit a part of Kenya he'd never visited. Uh, probably to trump up charges or whatever. Not charges, but votes. And, uh, and so the, he, he sent road crews ahead of him. And they patched up some of those potholes that would eat up a Volkswagen. They wouldn't do that ordinarily if it was just you and me riding down that road. But, but because the president was coming, the word was out. Get the roads ready. Get the roads ready. Patch them up. Whatever it takes. And so God is sending messengers. But, but it's important that you and I look and see how he describes the messengers that he's sending. These divinely appointed messengers. The first is the forerunner of the Messiah. This was not a new concept, folks. Hundreds of years earlier, Isaiah, in his prophecy, said in Isaiah 40, verse 3, he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. The Jews had always believed that God was going to send his Messiah. And they knew that Isaiah was talking about the Messiah. And they understood that when the Messiah would come, there, there would be one preparing the way, telling people, Get ready. Get yourselves ready. He's coming. Now, holding your place at Malachi chapter 3, I'll just fast forward you over to Matthew chapter 3. Just a few pages because you're jumping right into the New Testament. And chapter 3, you remember when we walked through the Gospel of Matthew, we talked about this messenger. It says in those days, in verse 1, chapter 3 of Matthew, in those days John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea and saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah, saying, what? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. There he is. That's the messenger. Malachi, you know, it's interesting to play on words too. Because when you look at the name of Malachi, it means the messenger of God. The messenger of God. Isn't it interesting that this Old Testament messenger of God was preparing the way for the messenger who would prepare the way for the Messiah. Yeah, John the Baptist was not your ordinary run-of-the-mill New Testament prophet. He was a blend. He was a hybrid between those old fiery Elijah, Isaiah kind of prophets of the Old Testament with the refinement 
kind of refinement of the New Testament, if you would. would. But, but, Isaiah, but, but John the Baptist had a very special calling. Can you imagine being divinely appointed from before you were born? Your purpose in life. Your numero uno purpose in living would be to prepare people for the coming of the blessed Messiah, the Son of God. You know, that's why Jesus said of, of this great man, John the Baptist, in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 26 and verse 28, he says he's more than a prophet. You remember when John the Baptist was in prison and he sent word through his, his followers to Jesus, are you the one? He was getting a little weary. He was getting a little, you know, questioning. He just wanted some reassurance and Jesus sent him reassurance. Oh yeah, oh yeah, I'm the one. <laughs> look, at all the, look at all the miracles I'm doing. Look at the message I'm preaching. Look at the authority I command. I'm the one, John. You hang in there, buddy. And after his, after his messengers went back to John the Baptist, Jesus said to the multitude that were listening. They heard. And then maybe some of them were starting to say, you know, John, I thought he was such a strong man. I thought he, said, I thought he was the, 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 the real deal. And Jesus set them straight right there in that passage. He said about John, he says, Among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Don't ever think of him as a loser. He lost his head, but it was for the cause of the kingdom. So the messenger who came as the forerunner to tell the people, Repent! Repent! The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The next act will be the real deal. And so then, as you go back to Malachi chapter 3, and you'll see that he does speak indeed of another messenger. In verse 1 of chapter 3, And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of, his, of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. In the context of this passage, this portion of verse 1, God is saying through Malachi, the forerunner messenger is coming, John the Baptist. But the ultimate messenger will be right on his heels. The messenger will be none other than the Lord himself. The Messiah. He will be the messenger of the covenant that God has established with the people of Israel. And he's speaking of the covenant that God will establish through grace with all of humanity. He's coming. And you, he will be in your very presence. Now, I thought it was interesting as I think about that. You know, if, if, I, was, if I were a priest in, in Israel and had just gotten that word, there's going to be a forerunner, prepare the way, and then the Messiah himself, the, the messenger of the covenant, is going to show up. I would have been looking for every possible prophetic sign that would have pointed that he's here. He's here. But you know, the sad thing, you know, I was looking over in Luke's gospel chapter 2. You don't have to go over there, but, but Jesus did come. A few shepherds. Um, some wise men. Three or maybe more. But it was just a handful of people. They came to welcome him to the earth. There was his mom and dad, and his earthly father, Joseph, and some sheep and goats and cows and chickens and whatever else gathered in that stable around the manger. 
But forget this, folks. If you read chapter 2 of Luke, the Messiah came back. He came to the temple. He was a young child. His parents were coming to dedicate him in obedience to the law. They brought him right into the temple complex. Just as God said, the messenger will come. He will come to the temple. There he was. Guess who saw him? Simeon, an old godly man who was waiting on the Messiah. God had said he would see the Messiah. And then an older, an old prophetess by the name of Anna. Only those two had spiritual eyes. The descendants of these wicked, hard-hearted, cynical priests, the descendants of those priests, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the scribes, let me tell you something. If their great-great-grandfathers were spiritually blind, they were even blinder. Because there he was, the Son of God. And if you read further there in chapter 2 of Luke, it tells us that every year the Messiah came to the temple. His parents brought him to Passover year after year after year after year after year. There he was and not one time did they recognize him. Not one time did they fall down to worship him. Not one time even when he made his triumphal entry into Jerusalem just prior to his crucifixion. Oh listen, the messenger of the covenant showed up. That was his first advent. But there's a second advent. And it's an advent that a lot of people won't cheer about. It's not the one that a lot of people will celebrate and look forward to. Read with me. Verse 2. But who can endure the day of His coming? Folks, Christ has come as, as fully God, fully man, and He fulfilled His mission, which was to die on a cross, to pay the price for our sins, and at the appointed time he would be resurrected from the grave, victorious over sin. You know, I thought it was interesting in our worship guide just a while ago. We read a verse that tells us about this. I'm just going to excerpt one verse out of that portion that we read in the worship guide. It's there in Galatians 4, and Pastor Tim will be preaching on this. But look what it says. But when the fullness of time had come, on whose clock? The Pharisees? I doubt it. On the Romans? Certainly not. In the fullness, at, at the perfect time, when God said it's time, in the fullness of time, had come. God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law. Look at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. That's why the first advent occurred. That's why the, the, the Son of God, the messenger of the covenant, the Messiah, came. He came to usher in the grace of God. That those of us who were lost and depraved and condemned in our sins would have the opportunity to receive forgiveness and eternal life and sanctification to be set apart to be the people of God and to be a part of the kingdom of God for eternity and to have the blessed unimaginable privilege of being the children of God. All of that was rolled up in Jesus' first advent. 
And I praise God. Why do we get so excited about Advent? Because had it not been for that first Advent, ladies and gentlemen, there'd be no Christmas. There'd be no reason for, for, for people to gather together and to sing about the sweet by and by and to talk about no fear in this life and to have a peace that goes beyond understanding. Listen, none of that would be because there would be no faith. There would be no grace. There'd be no salvation because there would have been no Jesus. But the second Advent is His coming in power and glory. At the end of the great tribulation, as we read in, in the prophecies of Revelation, and as you look back in the book of Daniel, that great book of prophecy, there is coming a time after a great tribulation in which God will inflict upon this world wrath, His wrath like it's never experienced before. People will be in anguish. The nations will be in anguish. Everybody will be in turmoil. There will be bloodshed like you've never heard of or can even imagine. God will be causing great catastrophic uh, uh, natural uh, phenomena to occur and, and catastrophe and listen this world will be in absolute turmoil and at the end of that great tribulation that says that Jesus will come he will come riding on a white horse he will come in power he will come in glory he will come to eradicate this world of sin and evil the devil and death he will establish his reign upon the earth but let me tell you when he comes he's coming in judgment he's coming in judgment and that's why he says, but who can endure the day of his coming? Talking about his second advent. And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire and like a fuller's soap. You know what refiner's fire does? It takes raw metal and it subjects it to an intense, intense heat so that the, the, the dross, the impurities are separated and, and then out of it is the pure metal. It's a purifying. It's a purging process. I don't know what Fuller's Soap. But you know there was a brand wasn't it? Fuller's Soap. Seems like I remember it was a real strong brand. Now I know this is a shock you all. But when I was small I had a terrible habit of saying bad words. Uh, and my mother washed my mouth out with soap. When the dial didn't do it, she'd get the lava, which is like full of soap. That was the strongest soap I've ever seen. I mean, it gets stains out. In Listen, when the Messiah comes in his second advent, he's coming to clean up. He's going to purge. He's going to purify. And he's going to start with his people because Israel will still be here. We know that the, the, the prophecies talk about an evangelistic 144,000 Jewish messianic witnesses who will fan out across this world preaching the good news of the gospel in a way that we can't even think about. But anyway, that will, so the Jews will still be here. And guess what? There will be the seeds from this rebellious, wicked, contentious generation of priests still on the scene. There will still be Jewish leaders who will still deny the Messiah. Who will still arrogantly thumb their nose up at God. They'll still be here. And God's got a word for them. He's got a word for them. He says, I am going to purify the sons of Levi. Ladies and gentlemen, when God purifies, He purifies. He's saying to this wicked generation of priests in the future, when the, when the Messiah comes, there won't be 
guys like you. I'll eliminate them. I'll purge them. I'll purify them. They'll be the dross separated from the pure metal. I'll get rid of this cantankerous, ornery, no good generation of priests who are deep steeped in sin and cynical and contemptuous and I will have a purified priesthood. And during Jesus' thousand year reign on the earth, I believe that's what you'll see. He says, I will, He will purify the sons of Levi and purge them as gold and silver that they may offer to the Lord an offering in righteousness. Then, verse 4, then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasant to the Lord as in the days of old. Going all the way back to the original days of Levi. Levi, as in former years, I will come near to, near for you, I will come near Near you for judgment, excuse me. I will be, it will be, I will be a swift witness against sorcerers, against adulterers, against perjurers, against those who exploit wage earners and widows and the fatherless, and against those who turn away an alien. Why did he name those? Because those are the very people that the priests of that day were mistreating. They were just as bad about treating the widows and, and with, with shame. They, they were just as bad at uh, practicing sorcery and, 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 and adultery and perjury. And, and all. God says, I'm going to purge all of that out because they do not fear me, says the Lord of hosts. For I am the Lord. I do not change. You understand? God doesn't have to keep up with the times. He does not change. Therefore, you are not consumed, O sons of Jacob. There's a word of hope. To the nation of Israel. God is saying, I established a covenant with a man called Abraham years ago. And in that covenant I told him that I would raise up out of him a nation who would be blessed and who in turn would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. Ladies and gentlemen, that nation is still to come. God is going to raise up an Israel like you and I have never known. It will be an Israel who will bow down and worship Jesus Christ as the Messiah and they will be allowed to rebuild a temple in which they will conduct uh, sacrifices that will be so absolutely pure and pleasing to God. It will be like a sweet aroma and you and I will be able to witness that. Oh, I, I get excited even thinking about that. God says, I can guarantee you that all the nation of Israel won't be consumed because I don't change, and therefore my promises don't change. Yet from the days of your fathers, you've gone away from my ordinances and have not kept them. Look what he says. Return to me. Return to me. And I will return to you. Folks, that's how we come to God. That's how we have a relationship with the God of the universe. We turn our back on our sins. We come to Him. We run from sin and run into the arms of a loving and a gracious God. God says, just return to me. I will return to you. I will never turn a deaf ear to a repentant sinner. I'll never turn my back on a child who's coming back to me repentant of their sins and seeking forgiveness and restoration. And that's the promise of the second advent. God says to these priests, but to everyone. He says, return to me and I'll return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But then, when, when you know it, when you know it, they close it out with a question. In what way shall we return? Are we already here? Or why do we need to come back? We're, we're already yours, God. We're already your priests. We're already your, your, your special people. What do you mean return? We haven't gone anywhere. 
And you know, I got a feeling that that's the state of mind of some of God's people today who are walking in sin, who are living in sin, and they are denying it and rationalizing it. And there's a call that goes out to them every time they hear the gospel. Every time they open the word of God, God is saying, come back. Come back to me. Return to me. And they're saying, but God, I'm already there. So what if I'm cussing a little bit and cheating over here and stealing over here? You know, what's a few white lies? You know, so what, God, if my attitude is filled with jealousy and greed? But you know, I'm at church. I give. I, I sing. <laughs> what do you mean, return to you? I'm already with you. Right? I think it's more than coincidental that today, as we look at this passage, it describes both the first advent of Christ and the second advent of Christ. And we focus and celebrate upon the concept of the hope that Christ brings into the world, into our lives. That is also the Sunday that we as gathered believers, citizens of the kingdom of God, are also going to observe the ordinance of the Lord's Supper. I can't think of a better place and a better time to spiritually return to the Lord than at His table. As we partake of the elements that represent our Savior's body, in that first advent He came on a mission that He knew would cost Him dearly. It would cost Him great pain and anguish and agony and, and humiliation. And yet He was willing to go all the way to the cross to pay the price that you and I could not pay to redeem us from the awful penalty of our sins. And so as we gather today to observe the Lord's Supper, I think it's great because it points us to the Advent. As we observe the elements of the table, we are reminded what they represent. He did come. Amen? Jesus Christ, the Son of God, did come. It's a reality. It is a fact. This Bible tells us clearly how He came, when He came. Oh, make no mistake about it, the first Advent did occur. We celebrate that today. But don't lose sight also as you partake of the elements of the table of His promise He's coming again. And so when you feel downtrodden and beaten up by this sinful world filled with wickedness and violence and immorality and this old flesh nature is getting the best of you and you're just wondering, oh, how will it ever turn out? Let me just give you a word of encouragement. Jesus is coming again. And He could come tonight. He could come tomorrow. Before we gather again. Before we celebrate Christmas. He could come again and receive us unto Himself. Oh, let me tell you something. The Lord's table ought to point us to the future to say, yes, He did come, but He's coming again. And I want to be ready. I want to be, make sure that I'm ready.